Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 13. Actually, it is John chapter 13, starting at verse 1, runs through to verse 20. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realise now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has, ba one who has bathed, bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So uh, my main message this morning is that Jesus' radical service requires from us a radical response of service. Now I want to just uh, thank Harry who jumped in for me last week while uh, the Pretorius household was, um, I don't want to say suffering through COVID because it really wasn't that bad for us, but nevertheless uh, wasn't allowed to be here. So uh, thank you Harry for that. Um, 
Today I'm back and we continue our journey from the garden to the garden city uh, as we consider how Jesus radically answers the problems introduced by sin and how he radically fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Now, last time we saw how uh, Jesus radically accepted everyone where they were at and then radically transforms and, and, and shapes them. He tackles their sin head on and while he accepts us wherever we're at, uh, once we come into a relationship with him, he says to us, now go and sin no more. And so today we're going to be looking at radical service. Uh, and what better example do we have than this episode where Jesus washes his disciples' feet? Now, as we read this passage and as we explore this morning, we need to wrestle with this concept of what it means to radically serve. Jesus comes to radically serve us and how can he do that what does what does that require in himself for that to happen and how does it relate to us and as we explore this together we need to think about this kind of circular pattern of thought in our text we start with jesus's radical service which then uh, sort of spirals out to the implications for us today and then returns us back to uh, to this idea of radical service and how that applies to us and so that's where we're going, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, so let's, uh, let's dig in. Now, the first thing we need to see is that radical service requires a deep commitment to love no matter what. So radical service requires a deep commitment to love no matter what. Verse 1, we read that before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own, he loved them uh, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This verse sets the scene for uh, the next four chapters of John. But it particularly sets the scene for what Jesus is doing here. He's at the Passover feast. They're just about to celebrate Passover. This feast that uh, the Israelites were to remember each year, year after year, that they were saved from God's wrath by the blood of the Lamb. That's what the Passover reminds them of. It is this great Old Testament foreshadowing of the Gospel. It reminds the Israelites year after year, every year, that they are saved from the effects of sin because of the blood of of the Lamb. This central feast reminds Israel that they are God's chosen people, that He saved them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and now Jesus was coming to fulfill that Old Testament foreshadowing for good. He was coming to be the Passover Lamb. But now notice what the passage actually says. Jesus knowing that his hour had come to depart from this world to return to God the Father, and return to God the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. At this stage, Jesus was about 33-odd years old, uh, and that entire life of his was an act of love. He lived a, a perfect sacrificial life and now he was going to finish the task having loved his own he was going to love them to the end and so everything that follows from here from going uh, through this last period of teaching and training his disciples which happens in these four chapters uh, of John to being unjustly accused to being flogged and spat on and insults hurled out and ultimately being hung on the cross all of this was part of Christ loving his own to the end. 
And we need to think about what that phrase means. What does it mean for him to love to the end? If he loves his own, what does it mean that he loves them to the end? I think firstly it means to the end of his life. You see, when Jesus goes through the crucifixion, when he hangs on the cross, when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing, when he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he gives up his spirit and dies, it is all done in love. He loves until the end of his own life, to the extent, full extent that he can all the way unto his death. But it's not just the end of his life uh, that's the end, uh, you know, to the end. That's, that's one sense in which that's true. But it's also true in the sense of as far as you can possibly go. He doesn't just love his own 90%. He loves us in our entirety. From the heights of our accomplishments to the depths of our depravities. Across our lives, as far as they go, He loves us. There is no part of you for which Christ did not die. Jesus loves you in your accomplishments. He loves you in your achievements. He loves you in your sin and dysfunction. As far as we exist from one end to the other, He loves as far as can go. That is why it's important for us to understand that it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It strips us of this sense of pride and self-assurance. He doesn't just love us for the good we have in our lives, but He loves even the parts of us that are dark and shadowy. He loves us from end to end. But He also loves His own to the end in the sense that He will love His own for all eternity. It is precisely out of His love that He goes to the cross to purchase us for all eternity, to save us from the eternal death which our own sin requires and demands. It is for His own glory that He saves His people to be with Him for all eternity. He loves us to the end and He will keep loving us until the end of all eternity if such a thing existed. And this means that there's nothing actually that can steal you or I from His hands. Everything that, uh, that we have ever done, everything that we will ever do, everything uh, He considered us even in our weak and helpless state, knowing full well what it was He was redeeming, and yet He does it anyway. He loves us to the end. We cannot be snatched from His hand. If you are a believer, it is impossible. He loves you to the end. And the work of love that He started, He will complete to the end. Until you too are made perfect in your new resurrection body to live with Him until the end of time. That's what it means when the Scripture says, those He loved, He loved them to the end. Now, for that to be true, for that to happen requires a deep commitment of love that only Jesus has. It requires a deep kind of radical service rooted in love that loves no matter what until the end. And that's all very inspiring and it helps us to worship God, but it also has, I think, two key applications to our lives. 
First of all, if, if that is as far as Jesus would go to the end, if that's as far as he would go to serve us, if he loved us to the end, then uh, all of the conno- with all of the connotations and overtones of all of what that means, if that's true, if he went that radically far to serve us, even to his death on the cross, then our response is to fall before him in worship. There is no other option, actually. All will fall before him in worship. We just kind of get to choose whether that's uh, before he comes back or after. How could you do anything other than love him for what he's done for you? Having seen the sacrifice that he lived and and died for, that was born out of his love, how can we do anything other than to worship him as our Lord? He deserves our love. He deserves our service. He deserves everything we have because of what he's done for us. Our first and foremost response for that is to fall in worship before our King. And the second application, I think, is particularly applicable to husbands and fathers. Brothers, Christ here is your model for what it means to love and serve your family. Just as Jesus is the head of the church, you are the head of the family. Just as Jesus is the husband of the bride, the church, you are the husband of your bride. And here Jesus gives you a picture of what it means to actually be a husband and father that loves loves his family. So you are to radically serve your family by loving them like this. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just like Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? To die for her. To radically serve her, even unto sacrificing his life for her. Now, it's unlikely that you are going to be crucified for being married to your wife. Unlikely. But Ephesians 5 does give us a really practical way in which you can serve your family radically. It says there, how, how does he serve her? By cleansing her through the washing of water by the word. Now, brothers, this is not an invitation, a biblical command to bathe your wife. Um, if you want to do that, that's between you. It's not an instruction to give her a bath because of your word. It's an instruction to bathe her and, by extension, the family in the word. The single biggest, most important way that you can serve and love your family, your wife, to sacrifice for them is to sacrifice your own time, your own energy, your own desires for peace and quiet and point your family to Jesus through Scripture to bathe them in the Word. That's the best way you can love your family in response to Christ's love for you. Radical service of your family requires a deep commitment uh, of love to the end of you as well. That's the first thing I think we need to see. The second thing is that radical service requires... I've written this down because it's a bit clunky. 
Radical service requires a concrete, externally defined identity. Very uh, clear, <laughs> isn't it? So let me explain. Radical service requires a concrete, externally defined identity. Uh, the Webster's Dictionary defines identity as the distinguishing character of a pers- or personality of an individual. It's the thing that makes you who you are. Now, bear with me, because we have to think about how identity works within human beings. And identity, ourselves, are kind of defined by these three kind of concentric circles. Now, what happens is that in the outer circle, there's your minority identities, if you like. You know, you're born, uh, maybe, like I was born in South Africa, that's part of who I am, but I don't really identify as, as a South African or an Australian, I'm just a person, but it's part of who I am, it's kind of out there, it's in, the, it's in the outer circle. You know, maybe you're a lover of cheese, that's part of who you are, um, it's not that important. Uh, a circle in are the things that are really important to you, that kind of uh, define you. So when you, when you meet someone new, you ask, what do you do for a job? Or tell me about your family. These things define you a lot more closely. So maybe you talk about your, your role as a husband or a wife, you've got children, or you're a parent. Um, your gender identity fits in this box. Uh, things that you really hold dear, like your like for me it's computer games, that kind of is an inner box thing, it's not an outer box thing, Um, and so that's how that works. And then at the centre of your identity is your kind of core identity of of who you are. Now that's how human beings work when they're healthy. Now what makes up your core identity largely shapes how you live your life, and this will impact the way you relate to everything else. Now there are two wrong ways in which this core identity gets defined. When our core identity is kind of empty, it gets defined by everything around us. So um, you will radically serve whatever will give you validation for your existence. So if your core identity is empty, you're going to do what you think other people want you to do so that you have some sort of sense of existence. You're going to say yes to things that are bad for you, that you know you shouldn't, because you want that validation, you need that validation, you need people to think well of you, um, because if they don't, and your core identity is empty, then you're going to be nothing. You actually need that to survive as a human being, Uh, and so you will do all kinds of things that might be very unhealthy for you, in order to just have a sense of self. This is why some people can't say no. Their core identity is defined by everyone around them outside and unless they um, fill that with something, in a sense they don't exist. And so that's the one end of the spectrum. If you, um, if you take a little bit of a step inward, what tends to happen is that people will fill that core identity by things that are supposed to be in the middle circle. Uh, and so their identity becomes things like, I am a mother, that is my primary identity. They'll say things like, uh, without my kids I am nothing. But the problem is that one day their kids will grow up or move out or just disappoint them, they might actually die before the parents do, and then what? If your core identity is built up by that middle circle stuff, and they break or disappoint you or go away, then again, in some sense, you cease to exist. And that's equally unhelpful. 
People like this will serve whatever they have put in that central core box because they think unless that thing is there, they will never be happy. But in both of these cases, the person's core identity is made up by something outside of themselves. Someone else's opinions or, or things that are in the middle circle, the job they do, the place they hold in their family or so on. They're all externally defined. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, people can fill their core identity with themselves. Uh, we use a whole range of nasty words for this. They're selfish or up themselves, narcissistic, they have a God complex, those sorts of things. On the other end of the spectrum, a person's core identity is themselves and everything they end up doing is in relation to how that thing will serve them. So people like this can still serve others, but they keep score. They know they have this mental bank account of every favour they do, every help they've ever given, so that they can call that favour in. So every service is ultimately self-serving. That kind of service is, um, is really entirely internally based and is equally unhelpful. But what's interesting is no matter which of these strategies you take, is that your, your world actually coheres, it, it makes sense. If you're a person with nothing in the middle, you know that as long as you do things that other people want you to do, life will generally work out well for you. And that's true. If you've put in your central core identity things that are in the middle circle, like your work or whatever, you know that if you work really, really hard, you're going to get eventually that, that promotion and your life will seem to have meaning. Your world will hold together, it will cohere. And even the self-serving person who has only themselves in the centre can, in a sense, manipulate the world around them and it makes sense. They know that if they call in favours, they will get repaid and whatever. The world makes sense. It's unhealthy, it leads to patterns of dysfunction, but it actually coheres and makes sense. But what's really interesting is that over the last sort of 20-odd years, our society has tried to find a worldly wisdom third way. And what has ended up happening is this. The thought has been, okay, we don't want to be the yes men that just say yes to everything someone asks me, totally externally defined. We know that's not healthy. And we don't want to be the politician, you know, the one who's totally internally self-defined. That's no good either. So this is what we'll do. This will work. We will put every possible minority identity and shove it into the central core identity. Now, the problem is, what happens when you want time for yourself to be your computer gamer dude, your kids want your time because you're a father and husband, uh, everything that, that you think about yourself, you know, the children mean the world to me, as does my gender identity and my wife and my work and my national identity, the colour of my skin, the shoes I wear, my desires to look after the church, uh, the, the world, and whether I like cheese or not, they all end up in that central core identity. All these things that were minor parts of ourselves, the world has tell, told you, that is who you are. And the more, the, things get, the more things that get shoved into the centre space, actually the less the world coheres and holds together, and the more confusion there is. And it ultimately actually leads to higher and higher levels of anxiety, depression and mental illness. Because there is no framework 
through which to process what's most important in life. Everything is confusing at the deepest identity level all of the time. If you want to play your games and your children need you and your wife needs time for herself and you want to buy some cheese and look after the planet, if all of those things make up your core identity, then how will you discern what is most important? Life then doesn't make sense. Now, why do I say all this? Because Jesus gives us a picture of the right way to live. Radical service requires a concrete, solid, but externally defined identity. Verse 3. This is Jesus' identity. Jesus knew that the Father had given him everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with the towel tied around him. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. He knew that he came from God, he was going back to God. He knew what his central purpose on earth was, what his mission was. He knew what his core identity was, who he was. And the central core identity was concrete and solid. But it was defined outside himself. It was defined for him by God. He was from God, he was going back to God, he was on earth to do God's work, to fulfill God's mission. Uh, That's why when he prays in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. He had a core identity that was solid and externally defined. He wasn't dependent on what others thought of him. He didn't mix up the things that were important. He wasn't confused by multiple different identities shoved into the core. He knew who he was because he knew whose he was. He was the son of the father. God had given everything into his hands He knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. He read the book and he knew how the story ends. He was going to see victory on the cross. He says earlier that he had seen Satan fall from the sky. The final battle was coming but he knew how it ends. His core identity was concrete but externally defined. And then in verse 4, Out of this identity then, he gets up and washes his disciples' feet. So, he got up and poured water in a basin. Now, the good news part of this is that if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, the moment you trust Jesus, that very moment, your identity changes. You used to be a person who lived in Satan's kingdom, in the kingdom of darkness. You used to be a child of darkness, but now you have been transferred into the kingdom of light. When you were saved, you got a new home. The things that you loved uh, became different. You got a new purpose. You actually got a new core identity. And now it is your responsibility to live according to that. Your core identity is that you are a beloved child of the king, a brother and sister in Christ. And nothing can change that. That is concrete and externally defined. It doesn't actually depend on how you feel 
how close to God you feel, how spiritual you feel, that is set in concrete by Christ on the cross. And that frees you then to serve. Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me, but as it is, you are clean. Every believer has been washed by Christ. Our identity is set forever. We are clean. That is our concrete reality that can never change. We have been washed because of Christ. And that then frees us to serve. Radical service will radically serve in response. So what's our response? Jesus says, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done for you. Because truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is our response. Having been washed, we serve one another. Notice who Jesus is talking to. He is talking to his disciples about his disciples, you are to serve one another. The New Testament is full of these serve one another type passages. There's about a hundred of them. You know, encourage one another, serve one another, consider each other's needs more important than your own, humble yourselves to one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another as Christ forgave you, and so on and so on and so on. Now, Jesus says, if you are to be his servant, that's what you're going to do. If you are his servant, you will serve your brother and sister in Christ. But then the flip side is also true. If you don't serve, if you aren't willing to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are in effect saying, I am better than Jesus. I am greater than my Lord. I am the messenger who is greater than the one who sent me. You are in fact acting as if you are not a believer, if you are as if you're not a Christian. And in our heart of hearts, we want to say, yeah, but Jesus, you don't know what that person has done to me. You don't know what it's like, the hurts I've experienced, the pains I've borne because of how they've treated me or whatever. But that actually doesn't get you out of serving the church, serving your brother and sister. Just because someone has done something wrong to me doesn't mean that I get to then live in sin, disobeying Christ, pretending that I'm better than my master, or that other people's sin excuse my own rejection of Jesus' commands. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 tells us we, we, uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. Just because someone has treated you poorly within the context of the church doesn't mean you get to not serve that person. How many disciples were at the table? He also washed Judas's feet, knowing, as our passage says, the one who was going to betray him. 
So you go ahead and wash your Judas's feet because Jesus washed you. There's a hymn we're going to sing after this which comes out of this kind of biblical truth. Brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you and pray that I might have the grace to let you be my servant too. Why? Because we are pilgrims on a journey. We are brothers on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. I will hold the Christ light for you in that nighttime of your fear. I will hold out my hand to you and speak the peace you long to hear. And I will weep when you are weeping. And when you laugh, I will laugh with you. I will share your joy and sorrow till we've seen this journey through. And then when we sing to God in heaven, we will find such harmony Born of, all, uh, born of all we've known together of Christ's love and agony. So, brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you and pray that I might have the grace to let you be my servant too. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the radical service, the radical way in which you've served us through, go, uh, through going to the cross, taking our sin on your shoulders, bearing our load, taking our punishment and giving us your perfect life. Lord, we cannot comprehend that in our heart of hearts. And yet that shapes us, Lord. It shapes us to serve you through serving one another. We pray now that you will plant uh, this vision for service in our hearts. Help us to serve one another as you have served us, because that is our act of service to you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.